Welcome to Book of Mormon Central. Come follow me with Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Uh, Hello. Good to see you. How are you? I'm so happy to be discussing these beautiful stories of the patriarchs with you today yeah. in Genesis. Yeah, we left off with Abraham yep. is where we are. Now we're continuing on the story with essentially his children. Yeah. Um, what, what's the story after this? Covers Genesis 24 through 31. And of course, the three questions we always want to cover. How does this bring me closer to Christ? How does the Book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament, and how does this help me live a more Christ-like life? And I find these stories just rich with all of those. You know, it's interesting as we read them as a child, reads a bedtime story, the stories are fantastical and interesting, and they deal with good people being bad and bad people being good. And, you know, there's lots of questions. But when we step back and look at them on another level and interpret them on another level, and finally, as we look for Christ in them, I really feel like they become so rich and have so much depth. I'm looking forward to jumping into the stories of Rebecca. Yeah, fantastic. So set the historical context here for Genesis 24 and 25 here. So Abraham is a clan, a, a chieftain of this very large organization. We're told back in Genesis 14 that he's got about 318 soldiers or fighting men or something. And the anthropologists who look at those kind of numbers suggest that this means there's about 2,000 people in his community that he is leading. And we're told in the inspired version by Joseph that many of these are his converts and that some of these are acting as just part of the community, helping out as uh, in any other way that they can, but that they are living a very unified life where everyone is working, everyone is serving. And so he calls them servants, but it's it's not like they're doing things without their agency. So we've got this beautiful pastoral society with a a chieftain who's living a semi-nomadic life, and they travel along this fertile crescent, and they keep digging wells, and people argue with them, and they move someplace else. There's a famine. They go down to Egypt, you know, and the same patterns that we see in Abraham's life of the barren female, we see again in his son's life. Um, Rebecca is also barren for 20 years. His mom, Sarah, was barren a lot longer than that, you know, probably uh, 70 years or 50 years. Anyway, a long time. Uh, she doesn't have a child until she's 90 years old. But Isaac receives all that Abraham has. So as we look at this um, arranged marriage here, starting in Genesis 24, the dowry that the servant, which I assume is Eleazar. We're only given one name of one servant in Genesis who's Abraham's chief servant. And I assume that that's who this is. But whoever it is, he is a man of faith. He is a man of inspiration. I love the way he prays. It reminds me, in section 9, we're told to study it out in our mind and come up with a solution and present it to the Lord. That's what I see this man doing as he's trying to um, fulfill Abraham's request. I also love just reminding us that um, this fertile crescent is ancient Mesopotamia, and we know a lot about ancient Mesopotamia, and so it's great to go back and read these records. And at the time, the women in Mesopotamia were given a lot more rights than they were at any other time afterward. At the time of the New Testament, women didn't even have a tenth of these rights. At the time of Moses, they probably had 50% of these rights. But in Mesopotamia, women were allowed to own property. Isn't that amazing? I'm just thrilled that the Mesopotamians were a little more unified. Now, they were still seen as um, second-class citizens. You know, that's that's normal with the ancient world. But the fact that they could make a decision and their voice could be heard, we see in the story of Rebecca. She is asked, 
let's ask her, what does she want to do? I mean, that would never have happened. Usually these arranged marriages didn't, that just wouldn't have come to pass. Now, granted, we still have at this time period these markets for brides. And in Babylon, supposedly, every year, it's written about all across the um, ancient world that people would come in from thousands of miles for these markets of brides and they would start with the most beautiful so you had to get there on time and they would they, the highest price was for the first and from then on it went downhill and if you're the last one you just know where you stood you know the only the poor could afford the ugly ugly ducklings you know it was just tragic tragic in my opinion but this was very much a part of their culture in the pagan world but when abraham asks his servant to go back and find a wife it is so that he will not be dealing with pagans. He wants him to marry in the covenant. He wants him to go back to his family. And Rebecca is from the same family that Abraham and Sariah were from. You know, this is, this is a, a, in fact, Rebecca is a first cousin once removed from Isaac. And that's exactly who Abraham's, you know, let, let's just open up the scriptures here. Um, he's asking him to go back up to this fertile crescent. The name in the scriptures of this area, Aram Nahrim, it means in Hebrew, between the two rivers. And it's referring to the Euphrates and the Tigris River. And this area is in the northwestern part of the fertile of Mesopotamia. So eastern Turkey, ideas, uh, northern Syria now. Do you remember when Abraham first came out with his dad and they stayed in Haran? We assume that it's within a day's or two or three journeys of that area. But we just know it's called Between the Two Rivers. Okay. So with, you know, just to kind of recap the story a little bit here. Yeah, we have, go we, ahead. Have the, we have the servants. You know, Abraham says, I don't want my son to marry a Canaanite, right? Yeah. Go to the land Chapter of my 24. father's. Yeah, go to the land of my father's. Mm-hmm. This is where the servant is just... You know, it's so wonderful. And they right? make this covenant with his hand on his thigh. Yeah. And so a lot of biblical scholars say this is because it's the covenant that will be passed on to posterity. So it needs to be near the groin. It needs to be near the element of passing on children. However, Joseph Smith changes that and says he put his hand under his hand in the JST. So I, I don't know. It's also interesting in the JST, chapter 24 is where Joseph stopped writing everything out longhand in the Old Testament And the Lord tells him in chapter 24, verse 41, go do the New Testament now. And then he comes back a year later in July of 32, he comes back and finishes up the Old Testament in shorthand. So we don't get any more nice, elaborate, long writings out. It's all just abbreviated abbreviations from here on out in the Old Testament. But anyway, going back to Genesis chapter 24, it's miraculous to me to see the way God places people in the right place at the right time. It, to me, it's like a chess set. You know, I, I'm just, yeah. I'm just fascinated, and yet we know that everyone has agency. It's just absolutely amazing how we God see that theme me. over and over again in this, in this, in Story. this, uh, these, yeah. you know, several stories. So, tell me more about Rebecca here because. She's given a choice, right? So, oh, so the servant amazing. comes. First of all, she's got such a confident personality. I'm yeah. just so amazed that she immediately jumps in. She's very intelligent. It appears that she's quick-witted. And also, she is quick to serve because, <laughs> don't you love the servant says, okay, whoever's going to feed my 10 camels. You know how much a camel drinks, <laughs> you know? Right. I just thought, okay, if it's a normal dromedary, it's 25 to 30 gallons of water each, and there's 10 of them. This is the size of water. She is filling a, a hot tub. I mean, this is an enormous... 
enormous amount. You know, the, the average archaeologist finds these these water bottles. They're about five gallons each. Right. And then you've got the the weight of the clay pot as well. You know, enormous. She she is one strong woman. Right. <laughs> but she's also chaste and beautiful and generous and. Uh, Anyway, I think she needed at least 50 potfuls to feed these, right. if she's feeding all of them and if they're all very thirsty. But whatever it is, that's not what we're emphasizing. We're emphasizing the fact that Eleazar, or whoever the servant is, is a man of faith and a man of inspiration, and so is she. Because she is willing to follow the Lord's promptings and talk to a stranger and help the stranger out, which is, I know it's Eastern hospitality, but this goes above and beyond. 300 gallons? I <laughs> <laughs> You know, and in those days, there was always some sort of a dowry. And I think that by him giving Rebecca these, as soon as he introduces himself and, and, and finds out who she is, um, you know, he gives her these bracelets and it says nose ring in, in the Hebrew. These are so costly. It sounds like to me they are over $6,000 in modern, you know, it's over four ounces of gold. And it sounds like to me in the ancient world, this would have been the price in some areas to buy a, one slave and in other areas to buy five slaves. So he is really giving her a dowry. It's, That's interesting. Yeah. So I'm always impressed with the combination of, you know, humility, obedience with commitment, right? These these weren't shy people, clearly capable. I think of the serpent, you yeah. know, very yeah. capable. You see him in this, in his element when he's sort of taking command of the room almost, right? And yet just so humble and, and faithful. Oh, and he explains the situation two or three times. We've got it we've got it repeated and repeated in the right. account. The Lord wants to make sure we get it right. But I'm just gonna look at chapter twenty-four in verse fifty. I just love this because the whole family is gathered. They're all waiting for the meal. And he says, I'm not gonna eat. And the reason why he says this, culturally, you do not eat a meal with someone unless you're willing to share a covenant with them. And so if you are not on the same page emotionally, spiritually, physically, you do not eat a meal with them because covenant making and meal eating are often consistent. And so in verse 50, he says, you know, I'm not going to tell you this. I'm not going to sit down and eat with you until I tell you the whole thing. And then her brother Laban and her dad, Bethelu, hear the story and say, quote, the thing proceedeth from the Lord. We cannot speak unto thee bad or good. Here is Rebecca. I am just so grateful that they were not. Obviously, they're using Rebecca as one who is bringing the flaw. I mean, they need they need the labor. They're using right. Rebecca as a labor, and yet they're willing to say, "Our sweet little shepherdess here yeah. can go with you." But then they say, "Don't take her too soon. Stay at right. least ten days." You know. <laughs> but I just love the fact that she says when they say, "Let's ask her," and she says, "I will go." Yeah. It reminds me of Nephi. So let's move on to 26 then. Uh, you know, chapter 26. Chapter 26. Yeah. And, yeah. and 27 a little bit yeah, too. So, a bit. so what's happening in 26 here? So Rebecca has gone back. It's that beautiful scene, you know, where she recognizes Isaac. I love that yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, she but what, what happens after that? Puts on her veil, which is the custom then that you're, that in arranged marriages, the groom did not see the bride unveiled. And many times they did not know each other. Obviously, Sariah and Abram knew each other, but this is, this chapter 26 has this renewal of the covenant that it's going to be with Isaac as it was with Abraham. And I, the Lord appears to him and I just love this. Let's, let's just open that up for a minute. Did you see the twins are born 
And in verse 2, the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down unto Egypt and dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. And the Lord promises Isaac this posterity as just like he did his dad. You know, and Isaac is not the one who has received this revelation about the twins. It's sweet Rebecca who knows, who has received the prophecy, who is a, who is now, I call her the, a prophetess. I, I call Rebecca our first prophetess in the Old Testament because she has had this revelation from the Lord that the birthright that her husband now has from her father-in-law will go to her second-born, Jacob. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, it's so sad to me that these stories that are repeated, you know, I assume Isaac heard the story that when his dad and mom went down to Egypt, they said they were siblings to get out of trouble. And so what does Isaac do? He does the exact same thing. You know, they follow the same traditions. And if you're just looking at it as a story, it seems sort of silly. And why are they doing this? But if you step back and say, no, these are men of God. They are following promptings. What is the meaning behind it? Why are they doing this? I see all these things as tutorials. And they're making relationships and the mutuality with the people. And we're we're able to see so much about the goodness of God in their lives because he does spare them and he does tell them. And it's also not black and white. I just, I really appreciate the fact that we can't assume that these prophets are infallible. Right. That's such a big deal for me personally, because there's always this tendency, I see it in myself a lot and, and in others, these are people that are repeated in the scriptures over and over again, right? You know, the God of Abraham, Abraham Isaac, Isaac, and, and Jacob, Jacob, right? I mean, these these are the standards, right? The 12 tribes of Israel is, you know, the entire covenant structure around that, especially in the Book of Mormon, right? Yeah. You know, we, we come back to that. And yet these people were magnificent and still flawed, right? And it seems like the Savior is constantly reminding us of that in so many different yeah, ways. Yeah. It seems to be human tendency. Yeah, let's not throw rocks at Joseph Smith or right. even at our modern prophet, or yourself. Uh, or myself. Yeah. Um, and let's just remind ourselves this. Although I do want to step back and say there are so few stories. I think the ones that made the headlines are the stories that people wanted to tell. Yeah. And I really think that we have got to remember that these have been heavily edited. And it's not just a matter of translating. <laughs> it's plain and precious things were taken out. And right. we have to uh, somehow read read between the lines a little bit. And, you know— so- the birthright coming down is really interesting because it it appears that it should be to the firstborn. And yet yeah. in these stories, it never is. Right. It never is. Right. And I love President Kimball's statement on the birthright between Esau and Jacob, chapter 25, verse 30 to 33, about this mess of pottage, this lentil soup issue. You know, I'm so hungry. I'm going to die. What <laughs> right. good is it to me? You right. know, I've been out all busy. The prophet said, the problem is not hunger. The problem is undervaluing his birthright. And my heart goes out to our day and age and says, the problem is not your passions. The problem is you don't know who God is. The problem is not social justice. The problem is not that we are unaware of the political environment of the day. The problem is we do not understand who God is and who his spirit is. And so we're missing the point. That's a that's a terrific insight, I think so too. And you know, just relating back to the Book of Mormon, one of our themes here, I see that a lot in the early scriptures, some of the criticisms they had with some of the apostasies, right? Yeah. You're looking beyond the mark, you know. This happens again with the Nephites, right? You know, yeah. when they start to go wicked, they look beyond the mark. I, I think that's 
That's a easy. You know, I want to even take it a step further, and instead of just looking at the stories historically, I want to I want to look for Christ in these first two chapters. Yeah. yeah, I'm fascinated that the longest conversation we have in the New Testament between Jesus Christ and anyone else is the woman at the well, and here we have these two beautiful romance stories at the well, and they're at the same well, and it's the same family, and both times the Lord has something in store to save the covenant. And when Christ comes to earth and he has this conversation with the woman at the well, we're told that both Rebecca and Rachel were virgins and upright and sensitive to the spirit. We're told the opposite about this poor woman at the well. (laughs) Unfortunately, her past, probably not to her own wish, probably she was forced into many of these relationships because women were treated like slaves in that day and age in the New Testament, especially in Samaria. But I, I'm fascinated that Christ is, again, referring to living water, even when we look at it in the sense that Rebecca is the main character, Rachel is the main character, and these women are willing to drink and find that living water. I made a big deal about all the buckets of water that she had to pour, and um, my heart goes out and says This is why these women become prophetesses, is because they are types of Christ in their own sense, that they become servants of all. Christ said, I came not to be served, but to serve. I came not to be ministered unto, in another text, but to minister. And here we see these women acting as servants of the servant. Isn't it interesting? Servants of Abraham's servant, at least in chapter um, 24 here. Beautiful. And then also, just like our Savior in the premortal existence, who says in the book of Abraham, I will go, we hear Rebecca's voice saying, I will go. It's just beautiful to see Christ even in these images of these women. Had you ever thought of Christ in the image of a woman before? You know, I, yes, because I have a great mom. Yeah, <laughs> but, good. you know, some, some things that have been talked about around women in you know, the New Testament, Old Testament, they're they're undervalued, right? This is a consistent theme. This is history. Yeah. It's but, part of the culture. They did not hold them on equal planes with right. men. And, and some points that have been made that I really like is this idea that a lot of the things that Christ brought to the higher law are traits that are, that are feminine in nature, right? You know, Patience, ner- long-suffering. Right. The washing of the feet, even the, the, these things yes. that he does, you know, and these miracles he's happened, these these really heartfelt miracles are a lot with women in yeah. the New and Testament And Christ even well. calls himself a, a hen. Exactly. Some of the imagery itself that he a uses A nursing mother, Isaiah right. 49. Yeah. Will a nursing mother forget her child? Yea, they may forget, but I will not forget right. thee. Right. Yeah. And so, oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. So I, I, I love this. And, and these several chapters with Rebecca and Rachel and Leah, they really are some of the best in all of Scripture about women Right. Oh, I totally agree. I, I personally feel like we see such great examples in these prophetesses, these wives of the patriarchs who go through so much trauma in their marriage, in their barrenness, in their um, not just in their children's lives, but is the way that they are spiritually sensitive, prayerful, faithful women. We have we have so few stories about them, but they are loaded Right. Fabulous. I totally agree. Yeah. So that's a good actually, you know, lead on to chapter 27, where we have 
kind of basically Rebecca guiding her son into the covenant. Well, you know, right? most people look at it as she's deceiving her husband. Yeah. But I, I'm so glad you looked at it that way because the story of it's time to give a blessing I, and I want the birthright to go to my second son because I had this spiritual prompting when you were pregnant and I can see your life. You know, in the in King James, it's a little tricky, but the same word that is used for Job as a perfect man in his generation is used in Genesis in the Hebrew for Jacob. He is right. a perfect man in his generation. And of course, Rebecca can see this and um, her husband does not. She feels. And I just want to step back and say she is not deceiving him in the sense of a blind man's bluff kind of doing it because I see her in a different light thanks to Elder McConkey. There's a statement from an apostle years and years ago who said, Rebecca is one of the greatest women in all scripture, and she influenced her husband to maintain the covenant. And that's just what you said. You know, I yeah. feel like, okay, this is, you, you've got, you've got good backing on your side, you know, when the apostles are, are backing, yeah. <laughs> backing up your thoughts, but it's she does. Yeah. Yeah. It helps. She guides both her son, Jacob, who becomes Israel. So I like thinking of it as Rebecca guides Israel to save the covenant. Right. Even though that's not his name yet, his name is still the one, the surplantant. You know, each of the names are so powerful. I love, they're all in our footnotes. If you just look at the footnote, you can see the each of the names of everybody and what they meant or what they possibly meant and, um, as we look back at it. But this is very interesting that she uses all, all her influence, and she—it reminds me a little bit of Joseph Smith trying to hide the plates. He yeah. is killing himself and trying to protect these things for years. He can't even get onto the translation because he's running from place to place, hiding, hiding, hiding. And I see Rebecca using that same kind of tenacity and direction to make sure that it's done as she was told by the Lord. Yeah. And I am just so impressed with this woman that she fulfills this answer to her prayers, this prophecy, and then Isaac agrees. Yeah. I just love this. And I also love the fact that when Esau comes in and there's the tension and the anger, let me just read this to you. It's uh, chapter 27, verse 38. Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too. And Esau wept aloud. And then Isaac does give him a blessing. Right. You will live by the sword. You will serve your brother. It's not a blessing that he wanted. Um, your dwelling will be away from the earth's riches, you know. But the thing that is so dear to me is if we just look at it from the civil rivaling, it doesn't make sense. But if we go and look from the Lord's perspective, he teaches us in section 121, many are called, but few are chosen. Right. And why are they not chosen? Because they don't hearken to the right principles. And Esau had not learned that the power of righteousness, the power of God, the power of the priesthood can only be used in gentleness, meekness, love unfeigned. You know, these same principles that you were talking yeah. about earlier. He had learned that. And then, like, yeah, he learns that later with the reconciliation. Oh, I he think. does. I, I and think 20 years so. later. And that's why I mentioned at the very beginning, all these are tutorials. I just yeah. love looking at life exponentially. You know, these I, are I like tutorials. That interpretation. Uh, one of the things that I learned with this one was... If the Lord is in charge of the blessing, which of course he is, right? You know, you have the patriarch laying out his hands and listening to the Lord and giving these blessings. Of course, the Lord is looking down. Of course, he knows what's well, going and, on. And right? Isaac, Isaac acknowledges that even in, in the next chapter over, he says, exactly. oh, no, 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 that blessing was for you. And he gives him another one. He gives him the blessing. Right, That's tw right. 28, 28 verse, verse 1, 28. But anyway, go on. I'm right. sorry for so, so I'm not sure it would have been different if the order was reversed, right? I, I think this is, you know, Rebecca's insights. Like, I, I know my husband. I know my sons. You know, I want Isaac to be in this proper frame of mind. 
when he gives Jacob this blessing, blessing. right? But uh, I mean, Esau's blessings, you know, wonderful too. He wasn't quite ready for that mantle. Clearly, you know, there's a, there's well, a, there's yeah, several he stories. He didn't appreciate it, and he's marrying out of the covenant. And right. you know, there's a lot of background here that would suggest there is some confusion. But it goes also back to the point that we are not infallible. And I also believe that every word coming out of a blessing is not God's words. You know, we're mortals trying to do our very best. We try to pray for the right things, but sometimes we pray for the wrong things. All the time. (laughs) Unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, I love that definition of prayer. It's to align our will with God's. The child has to align their will with their father's. That's the whole purpose of prayer. And sometimes we do it upside down. We try to tell God about our will (laughs) rather than that will. But in this situation, I do believe it was inspired because of the text. And the text explains that it was. In fact, if you want to, let's just jump ahead to 28 and look at that. Are we missing anything in there? The herdsmen are striving. Isaac is really a, uh, a peacemaker. He keeps building welds. I remember one time when I was shopping for houses, I was told there's three rules for real estate, location, location, location. And then I go to Israel and start studying in, in Israel. And I'm told there's three rules to understand Israel, water, water, and water. <laughs> <laughs> so Isaac's digging these welds and they had been stopped. And of course, we're back to this image of living water again and yeah. why Christ has to use it. It's such an important part of their culture. It's survival. And and Christ is saying survival is exactly what I'm talking about, but it's immortal survival. It's eternal survival. It's not here. you know. Anyway, the blessing is beautiful. And then in chapter 28, after Rebecca confesses to her husband in the last verse in 27, I just get such a kick out of this one. I am weary of my life because of my daughters-in-law. You know, my daughters-in-law are driving me crazy. Now, I have been blessed with absolutely wonderful daughters-in-law, but this one just just makes me chuckle. And then the next verse, remember, there's no chapters initially. The The next phrase would have been, Isaac calls Jacob and blessed him and charged him saying, Thou shalt not take a wife. Yeah. So we see the theme again, right? I want you to go north and stay in the covenant, go to the family and and seek. That's why I think Laban is a minor character. The real major characters are his daughters, Leah and Rachel. But as we move north up to this Mesopotamia, Fertile Crescent area, back up to the same well, Jacob starts receiving these dreams, just like his son Joseph will be a dreamer. And his father was a visionary man, and his grandfather was a visionary man. Here in chapter 28, verse 12, we start having Jacob's dreams, the dream, the ladder, Jacob's yeah, ladder. Jacob's ladder. So, so tell me about Jacob's ladder. What's what's the significance here? What's the context? And what whatever yeah, you know, if we look ahead is, to the consequences. I know if you just this. look at the storyline, it's really quite baffling. But um, we're blessed to have modern prophets speak on it as well. And I'll just share with you some words of, of one of our members of the First Presidency when I was young, when I was little. His name was Marion G. Romney, and he's referring to this Genesis twenty-eight, Jacob's ladder, and he says that Jacob beheld angels descending thereon. And Jacob realized that the covenants that he made with the Lord were the rungs on the ladder, and that he himself would have to climb in order to obtain the promised blessings that he was entitled to. And then he goes on and talks about, which verse is it? Oh, there it is, verse 19. Jacob calls the area house of God, Beth house, like Bethlehem, house of bread. This is Beth El, El short for Elohim. So Bethel, the house of God. And so President Romney continues on and says, the temples are to us what Bethel was to Jacob. 
You know, he is receiving line upon line initiations and promises. I would suggest he is actually having some form of an endowment where he can enter into the presence of the Lord. But the Lord is making great promises to him. And in verse 28, even, isn't this interesting? Excuse me, uh, chapter 28, but verse 20, he says, Jacob vowed a vow. And then he says, I will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on. Now, this is interesting because for me, raiment, your clothing, can also refer to the sacred clothing, the garments or sacred vestments that were given, or else at least your clothing that has new meaning to you after sacred experiences. And, you know, the word endow or endu in both Greek and Hebrew refers to clothe. In fact, the word atonement is this, this covering, this clothing, at least in Greek, in Hebrew, I mean, excuse me, it has the root from kafar, kaftan, the same roots as someone who's fleeing in the wilderness and runs up to seek for protection. And then the sheik opens the tent door and then covers them with his own garment and then provides safety. And that's a tone. You know, the, our chieftain is Christ. Our chieftain is Jehovah. And he is standing at the veil of his tent or tabernacle, and he opens the door of his veil, of, the, of his tent, and welcomes us into his presence and provides clothing and protection. So this beautiful image of this ladder, step by step, is consistent with the, the building of the tabernacle in another thousand years. And um, no, 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 the tabernacle is not a thousand years. The tabernacle is only about 500 years. The temple is a thousand years from Abraham. Yeah. Um, the temple is a thousand years from now. But all of them have this type of step and progression and higher order. And you keep walking up to a different level to make another covenant as you're getting closer and closer to God. And I mentioned last time about this always looking for a temple pattern in these scriptures. And I see the same thing here. The false religion is being taught. And then there's a period of probation. And then here, it's it's poor Jacob has to relocate again. Right. Uh, his probation is physical as well. And then they obediently search for divine guidance. And then the veil is parted and more divine light is given. It's just beautiful. I'm also touched at the very end of chapter 28. Did you see there he's paying tithing? Right. <laughs> I think they're living a law of consecration. They are. You know, I really do. They give all that they have to the Lord and then make sure that a portion can be given to those in need. Right. Yeah. This seems to be the spiritual awakening a, a, a bit. Like, you know, his grandfather went through it. You know, yes. his father went yes, through it. Yes. Reminds me of his... Enos, too. Yeah. Um, in the Book of Mormon. You know, he prays all night. And the Lord hears and makes promises. Right. But we see it probably, I hope, in our own lives. You know, we hear promises given to our parents. Do we have the same promises to us? To me, the temple has to, each each person has to have it internalized and, and saturate our own soul so that the promises can become real to us. It's yeah. one and one at the veil with our Savior is our hope. Yeah. yeah, there's something that happens with, and again, this is a theme throughout the scriptures, New Testament, Book of Mormon alike, that when you grew up with the gospel, when your dad was a prophet, right? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and your grandpa was a prophet. And your grandpa a devil. was a prophet. Yeah, yeah. You, you got know, blue blood. You know, and so, but there has to be this part where you own it, where it's yours, you know? Oh, it and has that to. Has, it has to. It right? has to. It has to happen with me. You know, I, when my dad was a convert and the stories that he tells, the contrast is so clear. So the same with my mother, right? 
myself, I grew up in that, but there still has to be these yes. moments, right? Yeah. You know, your yeah. own sort of Jacob's Ladder. I really feel like, like your dad was one of the Chinese pioneers. Yeah. I, I just oh, love the story. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. but I want to, I want to spend more time, leave, leave enough time to talk about, uh, Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah. Is such, <laughs> that is such a difficult situation. Oh, yeah, it's so crazy. But, you know, studying it, you know, and, and preparing Jacob. for this. Job problems, <laughs> wife problems, kid problems, right. in-law problems. Oh, yeah, lots. Of, well, this sibling is just, rivalry. This just looks like a family. Let's be honest, right? <laughs> yeah. it's, sometimes it's so hard to relate. It's like oh, I can relate to all this, right? Oh, yeah. You know, oh, families yeah. are messy, but they're wonderful. And so, yeah, I'm glad you brought up because I really feel like the women are the are the main characters right, we, right we, now. We refer in, to that in, theme again, again in twenty right. in twenty eight and twenty nine. I mean, and Rachel sounds like it was she was just a soulmate. And yeah. in a time when marriages were arranged, usually, and one did not fall in love first, um, one learned to love the one they married. Right. It's touching to see this very, very, very romantic Jacob, completely satur- f- infatuated with right. wonderful, righteous, beautiful Rachel. And we can all just imagine the horror of the situation. And yet I have to step back and say, wait a minute, in the ancient world, sisters slept in the same room, often under the same blanket. They're yeah. probably both shepherdesses in this home. They maybe not, but they probably worked together for many years of their lives. Um, they probably were married very young. Was this something that they knew about? We don't know. But I don't want to throw any rocks yeah. at saying that Leah was deceiving Rachel in this situation as well. I do not know. I know that most of the ancient world, the daughters did what their father said, period. Right. And what their husband said. And you even called your husband master upon marriage. This is part of the culture. And I see Leah a little differently because in Hebrew, so it it sounds as if she's not as pretty in the King James Version. There's something wrong with her eye or something, you know. And that's not what it really says in Hebrew. It says she has a delicate or a soft eye. In fact, some translations in English say she has beautiful eyes, which is interesting. But this is not the issue. The issue is he loves one. And I go back again to restored scripture and look at that verse in section 132 where the Lord says, I commanded Abraham to take other wives. I commanded Jacob to take other wives. So Jacob may have been startled. He may have been shocked. He may have been furious. But once he calmed down, and prayed about it with the Lord, he learned that Leah is going to become the mother of many, many, many greats. Yeah. All the priesthood holders come through Leah. All the, you know, just look at her son. She has she has more tribes of Israel than everybody else put together. Yeah. You know, she has got six sons. And my heart says, why would the Savior have Judah, have Jesus of Nazareth coming out of Leah's womb if Leah were not a great woman who knew how to parent and knew how to raise a child. Um, I am so impressed that the Lord's genealogy in mortality includes Leah. Yeah. She does get seen, even though she's the first wife, she gets, seems to be treated like a second class citizen. Well, but she's these... not the queen because she is not the choice. That's so, right. right. That's right. In a clan society, in this ancient world, um, it doesn't matter who you're sleeping with first. It matters who is the queen wife. And then right. the queen wife's firstborn should be the heir 
Right. So it should be Rebecca's firstborn, Joseph. But that's not until chapter 30. Is there anything else you want right. to talk about, Leah, well, in chapter 29? Yeah. So so the feeling that I get is she, she's kind of put behind everyone else. At least that's the underlying situation. Like oh, said, it's, it's just hard. So many There's jealousies. And it says that they're vying over how many nights your husband can sleep with you and the mandrake issue. Mandrakes right. are these, these foods that they thought provided fertility. And so, you know, and the oldest children here are still very young. Right. You know, they're under 13 when they're leaving. So, um, yeah. you know, may, maybe, maybe, thir- maybe 12 and a half, three quarters or something, you know, but they're all working out in the fields and finding these things. I just want to remember the family's young. So, so I just want to kind of connect what you were saying earlier is, is you had this theme or this feeling that Leah's sort of second class. And I think all of us feel that way many times, right? Of our course. Life. Yeah. And then that insight you brought in of like, you know what? Christ himself comes through this lineage, right? Through Judah and, you know, and the powerful things that happen. Like you said, she's just a wonderful, she would have to have been a wonderful parent, right? Yeah. And who she uh, was. Or like so, the rest of us, she's a mediocre parent doing her best. You know, I just feel like <laughs> I'm a fabulous mom if I remember all my good days. You know, <laughs> the highlights are terrific, yeah. right? But but that's the reality. I think that's just the power of the covenant is sort of coming through, and that the Lord takes care yeah. of us. It, yeah. it's, I see this over and over yes. again. That. Yes, that there is going to be such difficult challenges that we are going to have to go through. I sort of feel like Leah's Abrahamic sacrifice is not being loved by her husband to the same degree that her beautiful little sister is. But as we talked about how these women are altering history, I see them as types of Christ as they are influencing their spouse, as they are protecting Israel, and as they are the mothers of Israel. I just see them as Christ is a nursing mother, and these mothers are the mothers of Israel. And I am sure that they were, that both, that all, everyone in the family is raising these boys. Right. Um, And so not, no one can take credit for all their good and all their bad, because they do a lot of bad as well, which we'll talk about next time. But I really feel like when we look through God's perspective at these stories, we come out with very different analysis. We can say, um, he is running the show. He puts people in places where he needs them. And these edited versions have left out some of the plain and precious things that let us know these were men and women of God. Yeah. Do you want to add anything else? I don't think so, because that's a great spot to leave it. Okay. (laughs) May God bless you as we all become stewards over our own responsibilities. I believe that we are each called and have given responsibility for our own sphere of influence, just as the great patriarchs and Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel and their handmaids were. God bless you. Thank you.